Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this uh, LSE uh, Ideas event uh, called From the End of History to the Crisis of the Liberal Order, Rethinking the End of the Cold War. Brief introduction to myself. My name is Michael Cox, Professor McCox, Director of LSE Ideas and Emeritus Professor here at the LSE. And delighted to welcome you all here tonight. Good audience, great audience. Um, I'm going to say a few words just to set the scene, if you like, or bias the debate, whichever way you want to put it. And uh, once I've done that, I'm going to call upon our four speakers to speak with great Bolshevik uh, discipline, beginning with John Eikenberry, who doesn't need very much introduction. He's here all the time, even though he's at Oxford. John, <laughs> John why don't you get a proper place? You know? uh, Mary Cowell, a good friend uh, from many years of struggle. Uh, Pete Trubowitz, a good American friend here, now head of IR department, runs a very successful U.S. center. And last, but by no means least, and not representing Russia, uh, uh, <laughs> Pro Professor Vlad, Vlad Zubok. Um, I mean, I'll go in that order. Let me just make a few brief comments. In 1989, as I'm sure some of you remember, though many of you may not, something happened that the world did not expect. The Soviet Union, then led by Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev, decided to abandon Eastern Europe and East Germany. The Great Divide was overcome. Why was it a surprise? Well, let's be perfectly honest, because the experts said it could not happen. Why could it not happen? Well, for several reasons. I remember rehearsing many of those myself at the time. <laughs> mia culpa, mia maxima culpa. Firstly, the USSR needed a buffer zone or a cordon sanitaire between itself and NATO, therefore would never withdraw, for the obvious reason it would be strategically suicidal to do so. Secondly, it would never allow Germany to become undivided, assumption being that Soviet strategic interests were guaranteed by German division. And finally, of course, because Eastern Europe, when we go back to history here, Eastern Europe had been won after a, last, after a war lasting four bloody and bitter years between 41 and 45, leading to the deaths of 25 million Soviet citizens, many of those in the Red Army. Therefore, the sacrifices made of the, of the wartime period would not be thrown away in the 1980s. And those are the kinds of reasons and many more besides why people didn't think it was going to happen. Others not only failed to see it coming, they actively opposed change. Uh, I remember Fidel Castro making many speeches, usually of only five hours duration, suggesting that it would not be a particularly good idea for socialism, as he called it, to go under. China, of course, actively tried to stop it, using the East German method, as they like to describe it. And, of course, good, loyal communists all around the world, particularly in the Third World, but not only, were also opposed to change. And let's be perfectly honest about it. Let's, we want to be honest here. We are, after all, at the LSE. Many in the West were not that enthusiastic either. No Soviet threat equals no NATO. Yet what was deemed inconceivable happened. And the rest, as they say, is history. Or is it? What sort of future awaited the world in 1989, as people saw it then? Some worried and predicted we would soon be missing the Cold War, but as the next decade unfolded, all seemed set fair. 
Communism had simply been blown away or fallen over. America was now at the helm. The West had won. Russia was on its back. And in Yeltsin's case, quite literally. <laughs> China was only just emerging. Sorry about that bad joke. Globalism was in command and would soon turn everybody into good liberals. Well, that, I think, was certain assumptions held in the 1990s. Not by everybody, but by a very large swathe of people, including one or two on the platform, maybe including me. So what then went wrong and why? Whatever happened to the end of history, as discussed by Mr. Fukuyama back in 1989, when he said we'd now be moving into an age of liberalism forever almost. Why 30 years later since 1989 did or do these early high liberal hopes of yet another American century sound today, at least for some, not for all, why does it sound like so much hot air? Or to put it another way, why is the West feeling down and others in the world feeling on the up? Well, to answer these and many, many other questions beside, I've assembled, as I've already indicated to you, a stupendously great panel. I'm going to begin with John Eikenberry, who's going to talk about the general victory of liberalism, what it meant, and whether or not it sowed the seeds of its later crisis. John will be speaking from over there. Mary Calder will then reflect more generally on the end of the Cold War and maybe say a few words too, I hope, Mary, about what's happening to Europe and the connection between what happened in 89 and where we are today. Pete Trubovitz will then say something, I hope quite a lot actually, on the United States and the post-American world. And then finally, Vlad Zubok will talk about a resurgent Russia. I wonder if you could put your hands together and welcome this excellent panel. for this uh, invitation to be on this panel with uh, distinguished uh, colleagues and friends. And congratulations to Mick for the book, uh, his the book, uh, book yes, which will be available for <laughs> signing and perusal outside. Uh, really is a uh, kind of an artifact of the last 20 years, 30 years really, of thinking about the, the Cold War, the end of the Cold War. And, uh, and I'd just say that Mick... Uh, is hard to categorize. The, his essays are what makes him interesting and so important, a, a commentator and theorist on world politics and on Cold War and post-Cold War world politics is precisely that he kind of doesn't get easily put inside a box, an ideological box or, or, or uh, other kinds of categories. So he, he has a kind of surprising, open kind of uh, um, inquiry into these issues which always make his reading fresh. Um, so the question I was asked to, uh, to was posed that to, to, for my uh, uh, talk is simply, is the post-Cold War order over? Are we now out of the post-Cold War uh, era? And I would just say we, it certainly feels like we are. Uh, it feels like that 20, 30-year period of, of great anticipation, great dreams uh, is, is over 30 years ago. We really were at a moment where it looked like a new era was being uh, built. Uh, it was the closest that the world has ever come to a, to a liberal moment. The Cold War was over. The Berlin Wall was kind of the great symbol. Uh, Leonard Bernstein, the Berlin Philharmonic, uh, this new narrative had a, had, a, had a soundtrack. It was Beethoven's Ode to Joy. It was a sense that, that, that humanity had finally reached a new stage. There seemed to be a global consensus on uh, what could be called the liberal ideal, 
uh, representative government, human rights, free market capitalism, and the social welfare state. Uh, all of this uh, packaged together, uh, seen in its maturity inside of the West. The grand alternatives uh, for the great contest, which had really been the, the, the theme of the entire 20th century, seemed to be settled with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it was not just a collapse, it was a triple collapse. It was a collapse of communism, of the Soviet Union, and of the Soviet bloc. And so it was, in that sense, it, was, it had a kind of definitive character to it. Public intellectuals offered grand narratives of progress, convergence, the march of democracy. Liberal, liberal modernity seemed to have freshened itself as, as a way of thinking about the long durée. History, history seemed to have rendered a verdict. And it wasn't just Fukuyama, others as well. Uh, Marta Sen uh, famously said that democracy has now reached the status of a universal value, a, a presumed truth, if you will, uh, this in the 1990s. The symbol of this new uh, post-Cold War era was clearly uh, the West opened itself up to other countries outside the West, most importantly China. The, the, I would say the invitation to China to join the WTO was the kind of uh, inflection point in this, in this regard. Bill Clinton said, we are not just going to export goods, we're going to export ideas. And before him, the senior Bush had said that we are going to be building a new world order and in the UN speech in the fall of 1989, uh, uh, I think it was, he said, there's going to be a widening circle of freedom. So the sense of expansion, engagement, and enlargement. Uh, even as late as 2005, uh, uh, Robert Zellick, then in the, the second Bush administration, talked about China as uh, being invited to be a responsible stakeholder. So the sense of integration into a one-world vision, a one-world vision of, of a capitalist, liberal, democratic world. And the institutions, it wasn't simply fantasy. It was happening. NATO was expanding. The European Union was expanding. NAFTA, APEC, the WTO. Uh, the world went from the percent of democracies in 1980 of the larger population of states in the world was 30 percent. By the year 2000, it was 60 percent. So there was something, and I'll try to argue, still is something that can be called a, 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 an achievement that was marked by the end of the Cold War. But first, the, the bad news. Uh, over the last two decades, uh, that liberal narrative, of course, has taken hits. The 2000 financial crisis, 2008 financial crisis, I think, was that next turning point. Uh, it was a double turning point. For China, we are now hearing uh, inside of government circles, there was a sense that, well, maybe the West isn't what we thought. Uh, capitalism is not necessarily marching forward. Now is the time to th talk about our own model. But also inside of uh, the U.S., uh, the, the, uh, if you will, the, the kind of uh, failure, if you will, of, of the neoliberal uh, Washington consensus uh, delegitimized and weakened one part of the international elite in Europe, but certainly in the United States, that was part of the constituency for a post-Cold War liberal order. Then, of course, the Iraq War, which in some sense discredited the other half, if you will, of the internationalist elite in Washington and other uh, capitals in the West. 
so the, the, the brand of internationalism was, was clearly not, not very strong at this point. And, of course, Europe itself was in go, uh, engaged in uh, uh, struggles over the euro, and uh, those struggles have, have precipitated into the, the current moment. And then you have 2016, Brexit and, and Trump, this remarkable twin set of states the Anglo-American powers that had been for two centuries the leaders of imprinting into the world system liberal, rule-based, open ideas, ideologies, programs, institutions. Here we now have these two states in the form of their leaders uh, saying we want off, we've had enough, that uh, we're, read, we're going to rethink, rethink the project even though we indeed were the, the, the patrons of that project for, for two centuries. Trump, of course, wanted really wanted off and seems to be well off uh, the, the track, uh, even as we speak, on trade, alliances, human rights, and so forth. In the meantime, the U.S. foreign policy establishment has itself responded to this. And one of the most remarkable and, and surprising, even startling aspects of the rethinking of China and what we thought was going to happen with, inter- with in- integrating, trying to reintegrate China into the system via the, the WTO, is how there's been a consensus now in Washington uh, that, that we made a mistake, that the 1990s were a time of opportunity and we blew it, that somehow we didn't do things right. I'm going to resist that view, and in the debate there may be some who want to make that. I will defend the choices all along the line uh, in the broadest sense of trying to integrate and welcome and reform. Uh, but it's true today as a fact that the liberal bet that China would not just integrate but would uh, uh, evolve as a result of that, uh, the liberal bet that it could be a, a con- not just a consolidation of the, the Western system after the Cold War but an expansion of it, that bet has not paid off. Read Kurt Campbell's essay last year in Foreign Affairs. <clears throat> in some sense, the, the liberal internationalist side of the foreign policy establishment uh, waving the white flag. So what went wrong? Uh, well, I think it is important to go back to the Cold War. And in some sense, we often forget when we talk about the failure of the, the, the world order, we, we, it started slightly more limited, uh, in a more limited fashion. Liberal international order was built inside of a larger world order. It was built inside the bipolar Cold War system. So it was not, it was a subsystem. It was a sub-project, if you will. It was the inside order. And it had inside of that larger system a kind of... Uh, boundaries and members, it was a club, there were institutions, bargains, uh, social purposes. It helped that the Cold War was affirming that there was something ideologically and, and as a project for modernity at stake, but, uh, but there was a deeper sense that this is a, a foundation for liberal democracy to, 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 uh, to exist. The, the end of World War II created two order-building projects, the the Cold War project, that's fighting the Cold War, deterrence, containment, balance. But there was, in 1945, a, a liberal Western project. The, 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 the threat was not the Red Army. It was the 1930s. It was the Great Depression. It was putting capitalism on a, and a, a democracy on a, on a stable foundation. And what we see that project working during the Cold War, as the Cold War ended, that inside system became the outside system. And this, I think, is when the seeds of crisis were planted, right when everybody was uh, cheering. 
Two more minutes. Two, two kinds of crises. One, a governance crisis. That is to say, it, it, it took the U.S., Germany, and Japan, one, the trilateral system of that older order, and put it into a larger system with China, Russia, other countries. Uh, where and, and this led to the erosion of narratives, distribution of power, redistribution, new agendas, re, uh, new questions of history. And then the social purposes of this order uh, also evolved. Uh, we call this embedded liberalism, the sense that to be inside of that liberal order was to be inside of a club where you have uh, mutual aid. It's a mutual assistance. We, we are going to be safer. We're going to be able to stabilize our economies. We're going to be a, solve our problems of modern capitalism. And we're in it together. And when that inside order became the outside order, those social purposes ended. And in some sense, to kind of make my point, we have seen from the Cold War era the liberal order as a club to the post-Cold War era was slowly it has become, a, 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 you might call it a public <clears throat> utility. States can plug in or plug out if they want. Mick, just one final, mm-hmm. let me end a little bit on a, on a more optimistic note. I don't think, and I'll have to save this for discussion, that we are yet out of that world. We are still in a world where there are more democracies today than there were in 1989. There is nationalism and has grown, but even the countries that are outside the West are what uh, one scholar called conservative globalizers. They have bet their modernity on an open world economy, not blocks, not uh, zones. Um, There are stakeholders out there, Japan, Germany. Germany is terribly important for the future. It doesn't have an alternative. Uh, It has... Um, as as uh, Germans have said, uh, there are two nevers that have come out of the la- our history: never again and never alone. This is a a, a a system that countries Germany, Japan, South Korea, Canada, Australia. There's a whole uh, cohort of states that are there that are trying to reform and update. Uh, and then finally, the problems of the 21st century. I I don't think China or whatever model is out there as an alternative, gives us a methodology for tackling 21st century problems. There are going to have to be institutions and frameworks to deal with the nature of rising economic and security complexity. And uh, it's the winner of 21st century global order leadership will be the state or states that can solve problems of this era. And I think that leads me to place my bets on a particular kind of, of system. So there okay, you have it. Great stuff. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, thanks, John. Ending on a nice optimistic well, note. Mary, over to you. Well, thank you very much, Mick, for organising this. And it's absolutely right that we've been involved over the years in many <laughs> discussions about the nature of the Cold War. And I, when I started to hear Mick talking about the fact that none of the experts anticipated the Cold War. I wanted to repeat one of my (laughs) oft-repeated arguments that actually I think um, those people who were involved in movements, Mm -hmm. whether they were human rights movements or peace movements, did anticipate the end of the Cold War. And had I realised Mick was going to say that, I would have brought a famous quote from (laughs) E.P. Thompson when in his 1982 lecture, Beyond the Cold War, where he basically said the Cold War roadshow is lurching towards its terminus and there won't be, it won't happen slowly, 
it'll happen quickly. Mm. And um, I think that's a very central point for me to make because it's about how we study international relations and whether we focus <coughs> on the state level. Soviet experts on the Soviet Union would sort of look at May Day parades, they would happily <laughs> get papers from the Politburo, or whether we study society. Um, and I think studying society helps to explain a lot. So what I thought I would do would be really three things. One, I just wanted to go back to the Cold War and say what sort of a, what sort of a phenomenon was it. Secondly, what went wrong when it finished? And thirdly, is there going to be a way out? Uh, and some of my points will echo some of John's, I think. So I think the Cold War was a form of world order. And the way I tend to describe it is that it was an imaginary war. It wasn't that we had this whole body of deterrence in order to prevent a future war. It was rather that we lived as though we were continuing to fight a war. There were endless exercises on the East German plains. There were endless uh, spy stories, hostile rhetoric. We lived as though the Second World War hadn't ended, except we had the Soviet Union instead of Germany, and they had us instead of Germany. And um, you know, even if you think about nuclear strategy, which is completely mad nuclear strategy, but if you try to understand it, it's a way of saying who's higher or lower on today's power hierarchy, where you stand on the escalation ladder. Um, and I think what that did was to provide an order for blocks of nations uh, um, which provided a framework for social and economic development. It allowed for much greater exchanges. It allowed for trade. So it provided a framework. It basically provided social cohesion on both sides. As John said, for the West, the war had really solved the pre-war problems of unemployment. And what was involved in the West was a kind of social contract whereby people accepted the imaginary war in exchange if you like, for welfare or greater social spending. And I think it was actually, one can argue, that it was an outcome of explicit political bargaining. In the US, the Democrats got big government and the Republicans got military spending. And actually, Kaiserling, who was the chair of the Council of Economic Advisers in the 1940s, said, look, I just want to increase spending. I don't much care whether it's spending. That's the way to stimulate the economy. And there was also a bargain between Western Europe and the US. Western Europe had gone socialist in the post-war period. It was a bargain that allowed social democrats to come to power, mm -hmm. but excluded communists and imposed a NATO framework. And so it worked rather well as, as, as a form of social cohesion. And in the East, it was similar. The East was really a war economy, a centralized war economy in which mobilization for war was what maintained discipline. I often say it's what Foucault called a disciplinary technology, the whole paraphernalia of the imaginary war. Um, and, you know, I think Orwell actually describes it wonderfully in 1984, where he says war is really no longer... A, it's not the great contest. On the contrary, it's an internal affair. 
It's the way the ruling elites. Mm -hmm. They needed each other. The Soviet Union and the West needed each other to maintain their control and to maintain cohesion, social cohesion. So what happened when the Cold War ended? Well, what happened was, of course, the Soviet system collapsed, but I think also the social contract in the West collapsed. Maybe it had already begun to collapse earlier. And so although we had very lofty ideas about a liberal world order, which uh, John has described very eloquently, it lacked any kind of social underpinning. And actually, this was the moment of crazy market fundamentalism. Um, you know, I often think, because I was very involved in 1989, and it was very exciting, and I think, why did the communist elites give in so easily when, when we now see the Arab Spring? It's, it's not so easy. And I think one of the reasons was that the communist elites thought that they could exchange their political position for material wealth. And that's exactly what they did. They, became, they turned themselves into oligarchs. And so what you got is this sort of funny combination of crony capitalism and extreme inequalities, which was very evident in Eastern Europe, but is also affecting us in the West now. Um, and it's that combination which I think is producing nationalist populism. Trump, Putin, whatever. I think China's a bit different, but... Um, and... So what, what is frightening about this is that for someone like me who studies <coughs> contemporary wars, it's precisely this kind of pattern of authoritarianism and extreme inequality and crony capitalism that's what's produced new wars. And we could envisage the kind of thing we've seen in Syria and Libya spreading to the rest of the world, and that's a perfectly feasible scenario. So that's the second issue that the liberal world order lacked a social underpinning. But then the third question is, are we going to have this pessimistic worldview, or is there the prospect of rebuilding a world order that would be more or less along the lines that we imagined in the um, 1990s? And I, I don't despair. Like John, I don't despair. I think the best hope for it does lie in the European Union, actually. I think the European Union at the moment is the only, is, is still the main beacon standing up for liberal democracy, even though it's in the midst of great crises. Uh, but I think if it's, you know, of course it's in danger of disintegration. I think probably with Brexit we did it a service because now right-wing populists don't actually want to leave the European Union. They want to control it. <coughs> Um, but that's very dangerous, and in the Euro elections, there's a big danger that the right-wing populists will do well. So if we want to save the European Union and the liberal world order, we have to think about an, a new form of a social contract. And in my view, I don't have time to go into details. What that would be would be, if you like, a European Green New Deal. It would be a new deal, but it very much based on spending on the environment. 
And interestingly, what you're already seeing in these European elections is movement towards this position from the, the Party of European Socialists. Its manifesto is called a, a New European Social Contract, and it calls for an end to austerity, for a green transition. Also calls, interestingly, for a feminist Europe. Um, and I think that's the best hope for rebuilding the liberal world order. And it, it's not inconceivable, but it does require political will and a change in the global consensus. <coughs> Thanks so much, mate. That's great. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you very much, mate. And now over to Peter Truvitt. Peter. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I have a couple slides to show, so I think I'll, I'll, I'll work from up here. Well, it's great to be here tonight, and I, I want to um, thank Mick uh, for inviting me. I never turned down an offer from Mick. He always put together a great panel and so forth. And congratulations on the book. You should hold it up. There it is. And Sorry. He's going to be signing copies outside, outside. outside. Afterwards. He's outside. not going to plug it, but I am. So. You said welcome. So, um, so we all got our marching orders from, from Mick, um, and in my case, um, he asked me to, uh, to focus on the U.S. and consider whether we're headed towards a post-American world, uh, and if so, what has gone wrong for the United States. Well, let me begin by saying that I think we're in the post-American world. Um, at least if we measure it by the depth of um, America's own commitment to the liberal world order that it did so much to create and um, sustain in the 20th century. Um, American support for that order has weakened, and this shift or trend began long before Donald Trump decided to give up reality TV for the White House. <laughs> and to understand why, it's important to recall and what made um, America's support for liberal internationalism possible in the first place. Um, and here I'm going to be I'm going to be actually retracing some of the points that John made and also um, uh, Mary as well, um, but maybe with a slightly um, different um, twist. I mean, the answer, of course, it depended on many things, but I would argue that two things were really fundamental. The first was the presence of a geopolitical rival, um, uh, imaginary or not. Um, namely the Soviet Union, that gave American leaders and the country at large powerful reasons, incentives, to invest in military power. Military power was needed to preserve the balance of power in Eurasia, to deter other powers, most conspicuously the Soviet Union and then um, China, from taking advantage of political instability uh, on the Eurasian heartland uh, and its rimlands. And from the very, very early on, I think one of the America's central goals, really it was K 
captured by, by George Kennan um, was to maintain pluralism on the Eurasian landmass and to make sure there was no hegemon on, on the landmass. The second factor was, um, and here I'm really kind of echoing or channeling, I suppose, uh, Mary, was a strong domestic commitment to economic security and social protection for average Americans. And it was rooted in the great New Deal realignment of the 1930s. And this progressive commitment um, to social equity made it possible for successive presidents, Republicans as well as Democrats, to spread the benefits of economic openness pretty widely and overcome long-standing domestic resistance in the United States to the idea of pooling sovereignty with other countries. And what emerged was this, and John described it, you know, eloquently, is this kind of interlocking network of international economic, political, um, and security institutions and treaties that came to be defined as the liberal order. Now, the thing is, is America's commitment to that order, I would argue, lasted for about four decades. And that is impressive just in and of itself. Um, But no sooner did the West celebrate, begin to celebrate its victory over the East, and Fukuyama penned that famous essay that Mick referred to about the end of history, that Americans' commitment to that order began to fade. Um, For America, the collapse of the Soviet empire meant that it suddenly had a degree of freedom internationally that it had not experienced since the early 20th century. If America did not exactly have like a free hand internationally, it had a lot of slack or room to maneuver that it really didn't have during the Cold War. And this was America's unipolar moment, as Charles Krauthammer um, famously put it. And among other things, it meant that Americans no longer felt the same compulsion to invest in the production of international security, at least not at the same levels that it had during the Cold War. To be sure, the September 11th attacks challenged the idea that American security was abundant or plentiful. But as gut-wrenching as those attacks were, they did not alter that fundamental structural reality. Indeed, it was not long before an American president, Barack Obama, could tell David Remnick of The New Yorker that America no longer really needed a George Kennan. That is, a geopolitical thinker to design a strategy for the country to navigate and contain foreign threats to America. Why not? Because it didn't face any. It didn't face a Soviet Russia or a Nazi Germany or an imperial Japan. Obama understood that, and so does Donald Trump. And thus, it's not that surprising that America no longer 
feels as compelled to invest as heavily in military force or power as it once did. Yes, I know it spends more on military, on the military than the seven next countries combined, and you can put together a really great, strong case that the U.S. spends way too much money <laughs> on defense. I agree. <laughs> but that's not the measure that matters, at least not politically. What matters is the opportunity cost to America. And as the, this slide suggests, that cost has been going down since the end of the Cold War as it has across the West. To be sure, there was a surge in the share of GDP that America devoted to military spending in the early 2000s to wage the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. But the overall downward trend basically reasserted itself. And Donald Trump's commitment to make America great again has really not moved the needle. Last year, as a percentage of GDP, it was about 3.2. All of which is to say that America's commitment to invest in military power is not what it once was. Now, by itself, this might not be enough to tip the scales against liberal internationalism. But as Mary correctly pointed out, I mean, I think this is just dead on, it has been <coughs> accompanied by a steady decline in American, and not only American, Western support for economic openness, institutionalized cooperation, and multilateral governance. That is, for liberal internationalism's second pillar. And this is reflected, really, in this next slide. This is based on some work that I'm doing with Brian Bagoon, who's at the University of Amsterdam. And it draws on data on economic and uh, political globalization that's generated by the KOF uh, Institute in Switzerland. And basically what it is tracking here is country-level support for economic openness, participation in international institutions, and signed multilateral treaties. And what you see here is an American decline, actually more generally a Western decline, in support for these things. Now, to be sure, the level is still very high, but you can see the inflection point here. And importantly, it occurs before the 2008 economic crash. So this is a secular development that is taking place that predates that and then accelerates after it. Many factors have contributed to this decline, but for my money, the critical one is the erosion of domestic confidence in the liberal order's ability to deliver economic security and opportunity. This is what has caught so many by surprise, I think, and largely because so many drank the globalization Kool-Aid, you know, back in the 1990s and early 2000s. And as America's commitment to globalization deepened, um, and partly as a result, many of the progressive commitments of the New Deal order were rolled back. And as that happened, Domestic support for liberal order building has weakened. 
And so international arrangements that were once considered tolerable and in some sectors of the United States quite beneficial are increasingly viewed as infringements on American sovereignty and threats to American livelihoods. And that Donald Trump was able to win the presidency in 2016 on an avowedly anti-internationalist platform is evidence enough that many Americans are already living in the post-American world. Whether the rest of America ends up there remains to be seen. But the takeaway here, and this is where I'll end, is not the usual story, I think, about American decline. It's not a story about China stealing American market share or Russia outmaneuvering the United States geopolitically. Both of those things are happening. But the story here is one of American abdication. If America continues to retreat from the world in these ways, the world that it did so much to build, that order, it will be because more and more Americans conclude that that order is no longer fit for purpose. That is, for America's purpose. The international order won't disappear, and America's not going to be riding in the caboose. It's too big and too damn important. But it will be an order where America is no longer steering the locomotive. And that, my friends, will be a change. And I'll leave it there. And uh, my good friend, Vlad Zubok. Vlad. All right. If uh, you permit, I will stay here. Uh, well, most of we hear about the current uh, crisis, it's a heavy word, of the liberal order is from inside the bubble of the liberal order. So uh, being actually from Brighton, I don't pretend to be outside that bubble, but being, <laughs> being a Russian uh, helps a little bit, uh, helps a little bit. Oh, I uh, hoped I was, because I'm from Brighton too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you're not Russian, okay. Uh, you know that. A new international is in the making, okay. Um, so um, uh, thank you, Mick, uh, for, for your book and for, for yes. putting together this panel. Uh, but uh, discussing Russia and what Putin is about and what is going on in Russia is like discussing the subject uh, on which there's no freedom at all for free thought. It is politicized to absurd degree. Uh, on the Western side, there's a giant and quite vocal committee for clear and present danger, <laughs> consisting of Putinophobes, concerned liberals, Democrats, small D and big D, Ukrainophiles, and even some former secretaries of defense. <laughs> so thank you, Mick, for asking me to step onto this minefield. Um, <laughs> I know the way through. Well, indeed, if we look at the uh, last three decades of Russian history, what is Russia in international relations, one comes to a puzzle. How can Russia, that after all had destroyed the Soviet Union, although Ukraine claims it also did some help, um, 
1991, how this Russia that reduced the Soviet military-industrial complex by at least four times, basically through mismanagement and looting, reducing the army by the order of 10, and now spending only 10% of what the United States spends on defense, how it can become uh, to such a giant looming so heavily in the uh, security imagination, uh, particularly of American and British public. This is a true enigma, but enigma comes very well along with Russia. (laughs) So I would like to begin not with Mr. Putin, but uh, with this uh, Russian literary giant, Fyodor Dostoevsky, who in his um, quite famous, and for young people I would remind, maybe you should read it, um, story about Grand Inquisitor, a tale that he places inside the Karamazov brothers, um, tells about the Christ figure coming back to Spain, to Seville to be exact, and facing the mob that is kind of friendly and hostile at the same time. And the Grand Inquisitor arrests Christ figure and tells him, oh, wait, sorry guy, we have to burn you uh, this time, not crucify you. And so, well, you know, wh- why? Because people are not ready for you. People, instead of freedom that you bring, want bread. So Dostoevsky in this uh, tale comes with this famous trinity of mystery, miracle, and authority that people really need much more than freedom. Um, And, you know, literary experts and historians keep discussing what did Dostoevsky mean by that. He was probably one of the most bitter and uh, I would say successful critic of liberalism in Russia and probably in Europe in the 19th century. What should we learn from Fyodor Dostoevsky? And what is behind mystery, miracle, and authority? Is that religion? Is that myth of national greatness, maybe? Um, something else? Um, Augustino del Noce, a little-known Italian philosopher, picks on this idea... And uh, he studied mostly Marxism. And why Marxism self-destruct in Europe? Uh, what happened? He ascribed it to negative dialectic, uh, dialectic of secularism and materialism. After all, Marxism, looking so materialist on the surface of it, so scientific, um, is a transcendent messianic belief. You have to believe in communism. So for decades... Uh, the rise of materialism and secularism uh, had been eating into the bone and marrow of Marxism to the point of its self-destruction, because it happened from within as well. Now, what about liberalism? What an idea. Can liberalism self-destruct in a similar way? After all, you know, despite the fact that liberalism went remarkably well with the rise of secularism, with the rise of materialism for at least two centuries, I should say, if not more, probably more in Britain, um, after all, it's also a millenarian and passionate movement. So in the rest of my short talk, I would like to make this distinction uh, between liberalism as order and liberalism as movement. And that's an interesting dialectic, if you look into this. Um, liberalism, liberalism as order, of course, was reinvented at least two times, as we know it, during the 20th century. But together with the movement, liberal order was ma- managed uh, to succeed remarkably against its opponents. And this is what all Fukuyama stuff is about. First, 
liberalism destroying, well, not liberalism, of course, well, Soviet army helped a bit, uh, uh, the, the forces of the right, fascism, but then uh, in the 80s, the forces of the left as well. So as you move along the timetable, you sort of see liberalism winning magically all its main opponents. What happens, however, when you defeat all your opponents? You lose your passion. You lose the purpose. You become flabby. Mm -hmm. You no longer have powerful goals to achieve. But you are being eaten by the same enemies that had eaten Marxism, secularism, and materialism. I'm just describing what Del Noche wrote about. So, um, however we know, an interesting thing happened after the end of the Cold War, after the main enemy, the left, the communist left, was toppled. Liberalism as a movement did not declare its mission accomplished. It went on offensive in a major way, and it met on offensive on two fronts. The external front we know more about. It's Yugoslavia, Iraq, Afghanistan, Arab, Arab Spring, and so on and so forth. Let's democratize the world. Let's democratize Kabul, Afghanistan. That's as extreme as one can get. Even more, this kind of domestic uh, international overreach, because it's safe to say it was an overreach, of course. It, even more, this overreach happened domestically. We talked quite correctly about the breakdown of the social compact. This is very important, highly important, perhaps the most important. But in parallel to this, you have the uh, offensive of the liberal movement on not only um, the uh, tissue of the existing society, not only aiming at the future of that society, but also even the past, trying to redress all illiberal sins that humanity committed during previous centuries. Also, liberalism as a movement uh, went in a major way into social engineering, using state and public institutions and resources to eradicate all biases, all prejudices, all forms of social hate. They were all criminalized, by the way. A conservative backlash, if Dostoevsky had been alive, he would have said, but that would backlash, and it did. That backlash was overdue, Perhaps not inevitable, but highly likely. It is a backlash not so much against liberal order per se. It is backlash against the continuing liberal movement that creates disorder for many, many people. So instead of creating new consensus, at least ideological consensus in the West, it splits the remainder of this consensus. Uh, And the discussion is about which norms of liberalism actually have or should be validated and which should be rejected. Now back to Russia, which is a less interesting subject, I can assure you, (laughs) than the previous point. What is Putin about? When you take liberal order during the last 20 years, is Putin that long old? Almost. Almost 20 years. So Putin uh, and Russia, I would say, after that awful period of the 90s, adapted quite remarkably to the liberal order. At least, you know, during the zeros. Um, In fact, Russia's revival and partial resurgence was unthinkable 
without that adaptation to the existing liberal order. Um, Russia was a free rider on that order, not as successful as China, but I would say some limited success. Russia took from the past some remaining Soviet assets, especially Brezhnev-era oil industries and pipelines. It rejected some Soviet burdens that caused Soviet overreach, subsidies to allies around the world, inflexible and bulky industrialized economy, rigid financial policies, unsustainable control over ideas and information, etc., etc. Instead of a totalitarian party and total prophylaxis of the population by the KGB, the Russian state began to rely on strong bonds of non-material nature, such as symbols of nationalism, great patriotic war, Russian Orthodox Church, and so on and so forth. So when did Russia and Putin turn away from this adaptation course? In my view, in some sense, never. They would love to return to this course and continue to adapt. It was against the ever-changing agenda of the liberal order, and particularly American hegemony of this order, that Russia turned against. It also turned against what became an embodiment of a liberal movement, liberal movement, always uh, revising the existing order, always staking up new demands on Russia as how, how quickly Russia should move to democracy, civil society, and so on and so forth. A couple of points for those of you who still think that Russia's turn away was a just Putin's mistake. Uh, maybe it was Putin's mistake. Maybe, you know, it was indelibly linked to Putin's personality. Personalities always played the role in Russian history. But one point is that the majority of Russian population never learned what kind of stake in the liberal order they were supposed to have. The 90s were awful. The zeros were much, much better, but they, they coincided with, with the advent of Putin's regime and with, uh, with kind of new set of ideas. So back to Dostoevsky. If you are Russian, reading Dostoevsky, you totally recognize the problem. Russia had freedom or was offered freedom in the 1990s, but no bread and no authority, no mystery and no myth. Putin offered all of that to the Russians, and took only one thing away, and only partially freedom. There's a lot of freedom in Russia today that I couldn't dream of as a person growing up in the Soviet Union. Freedom of travel, freedom of conscience, freedom of even crying the streets, Putin is a fool, as long as you don't do it too loudly. (laughs) (laughs) One cannot read the future, but I would say if Putin suddenly decides to step down like that Kazakh leader, uh, Sultan Nazarbayev, I don't think there will be uh, all of a sudden this bursting out of that liberal moment from inside the Russian society that had surprised all of us in 1989, 1990, 1991. My forecast is Russians will remain opposed to the liberal movement because they, you know, simply don't have a stake in it. Um, Russian state and the liberal order is another caveat that should be learned. Russia, unfortunately, again, maybe by accident, through its geography and history, um, ended up as the biggest outlier to the east of the most successful liberal project. 
the European Union. There was never a serious attempt to offer any kind of deal to the Russia. And when intermediary zone states such as Ukraine uh, came up with, uh, with the ideas of joining Europe, uh, EU placed an ultimatum. Either you're with us or you're against us and with Putin. So it's no wonder that at some point Russian states and elite became, began to feel exclusion from the liberal order. Uh, just summing up, because time is uh, precious, uh, in conclusion, what, what is the future? What is the forecast? Is there, can we expect some kind of peaceful coexistence between Russia, with China behind it, and the liberal order? No. We had one peaceful coexistence in the 1970s. And we know now much more than we knew in the past why it didn't work out. In this case, I would say one big factor why this cannot work out is the existence of liberal movement that continues to place demands for democratization, civil rights, this and that, supports internal dissidents and so on and so forth inside Russia, creates that perfect image of external enemy. And by the way, the very fact that this liberal agenda is being imposed from outside continually only reinforces that image of externality, of liberalism to Russian nation and the Russian values. So, my unhappy conclusion is no peace can be reached between the Russian people and the liberal movement, but also between Russian state and the United States, as long as the United States remains the hegemon of this liberal order. Okay. Well, get your breath. Vlad, you went through the minefield, came out the other end. You still got two legs. Uh, not, don't say it yet. You know. No, I won't say it yet. <laughs> it's a delayed effect. There's a there's a black car. You're, you're, anyway, black car. You know, that was was that that was more Russia than Brighton, I think. Um, Mary talked to the breakdown of the social contract. By the way, Mary, a number of us did anticipate the, 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 the not the precise nature of what happened, but I think many of us had been writing about that for some time. Uh, all I was trying to do is suggest that the, the dominant narrative of most yeah, people, it, it was never, it couldn't happen. I mean, I don't think many in the West actually actually very keen on it happening. Yeah. No Soviet threat, no NATO. You know, you've got to, there was a real problem. And I think exactly. what happened in 1989 may have been welcomed by some, but it certainly was regarded with great trepidation by a, a great number of policymakers, both in Brussels and Washington and elsewhere, including, by the way, the, uh, Bush senior in his, in his first months. I mean, he was very, very cautious to the... To the problem of Gorbachev. In fact, Gorbachev was more of a problem. They believed Gorbachev was going to be overthrown anyway, and it would return to normal. So I think, you know, the way we've cast the way it happened, that triumphalist interpretation doesn't take us into the complexities of what really happened. Peter, I thought some of the points you made really, it may well be that the real debate about America, which goes on and on and on and on, decline, 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 <laughs> relative or otherwise, you know, I think that's such a tedious debate, frankly, maybe because I've written so much about it. <laughs> I've made it tedious too, for which I apologise. But I think you're right. I mean, the, the, the much more interesting question isn't that one. It is, you know, how the United States relates to the, to the global order it's created. And, and its retreat 
and its retreat from it. And John, uh, you, you made a, a number of a very interesting and I think provocative points. You still ended up as, as, as I suppose, the more optimistic. Uh, but I, I don't know if you were kind of reaching for straws or you, were, you needed to be optimistic at a very end. So I'm going to just come back to you, John, to reply to some and maybe get one quick comment from each of you on what you've heard from other speakers on the platform. And um, that would be helpful. And then we'll open it up quick. Just maybe one or two, John, just okay. to come back. That would be great. On Russia, uh, Vlad's comment really depressed me because... Yeah, you were looking sad over there. It's, sort of, saw, yeah. it's, it's the total instrumentalization of values. We Russians, hmm, do we want liberalism or not? Well, will it put bread on my table? Will it, is there something it will give to me? As opposed to the first principle question that a polity should be asking is, what kind of values do we want to use to organize our collective political and social life? Hmm. And I don't think if... I think Russia needs to answer that question. If it's liberal democracy, then no. there's, a, there's, some, there's, a, there's a door open. If it's not, then uh, best of luck. Uh, I, I mean, in some ways, you have to sort of say liberal order is not necessarily uh, there for everyone. And my thesis is that it's actually yeah. regional. It was a subsystem. And it, there's a more of a discipline to it because, and this is what I'll just, in some ways, uh, Liberal democracy is a bundle of contradictions. Uh, it's, it's values that are not always in, synchron, in synchronicity. You know, liberty and equality, uh, openness and social stability, um, uh, the, the collective versus individual rights. Uh, and so the container that liberal democracies individually and collectively have to create to manage those decisions that each generation has to make about how you balance and trade off values within an open, rule-based, representative democracy requires a political infrastructure. And uh, so that's where I would put my my question for the future. Can can you recreate that infrastructure, which has been lost, and and where else can you go? The second point, very quickly, I think there is a a misplaced narrative that's going around the table here, which is about the 1990s as a kind of we grew, the U.S. won the Cold War and then spread liberal democracy around the world. I don't read it that way. If you look at it carefully, there's a lot of countries that are dying to get into this thing. More want in than out. It's, it's, it's countries that are without other alternatives uh, wanting to integrate, use it for their own social purposes. I think Mary was talking about this during the Cold War, social Democrats in Europe, Japanese in their own way were using it. So uh, the South Koreans are the poster child of a country that was able to do economic and political transitions. They don't want to go back. Uh, They would look at Putin's Russia and say, as I said before, good luck. Good luck. Mary, any quick well, my Come, quick thanks, comment is that, of course, coexistence works. You like, yeah. Um, if, if Trump is your, the person, you know, there's a kind of authoritarian international. Trump doesn't represent the threat of the liberal order. <laughs> uh, Trump, Viktor Orban, you know, it's a new kind of international of dictators. And actually, I don't think it's a peculiarly Russian phenomenon because I think if you look at Viktor Orban... That's a very, in Hungary, or the Law and Justice Party in Poland, it's a very similar phenomenon that comes out, I think, of this combination of an illiberal heritage, an authoritarian heritage, with 
neoliberalism, market fundamentalism imposed on it, which is a really toxic mixture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yes, of course, the European Union does represent a threat. And I I do think there's a struggle going on. And when the uh, Russians talk about nonlinear war and the idea of how easy it is to create disorder... This is all about trying to undermine the European Union. So I do think there might be a struggle going on between Russia and the European Union, but not between Russia and America. Okay. Uh, Peter, just any quick comment you want to make? Well, there are a lot of really interesting things that were said here. I I, I suppose just to return to something that... Well, I I was going to go with something that John raised about China, but actually I'd like to hear Mary say a little bit more about rebuilding the social contract. Um, I mean, it it, it seems to me that is just, in in the U.S. context, it's just such a huge problem right now. And if, but it is not, I mean, but job one is to change the occupant of the White House. And so, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like first things come first. But it's, it's, all hands on deck. I mean, well, but it, it's, it's what do you do it around? You know, I was thinking about the reference to the, the Green New Deal. And, um, you know, if you kind of do a counterfactual exercise, if, if the climate crisis had come up in the late 1940s or early 1950s, the United States would have been out front on that it, because all of these other conditions make that, you know, it would have been almost seized as an opportunity to lead. And it just seems to me, you know, I'm kind of without without somehow that almost in place, mm. you know, it's, it's, you're suggesting it can be the occasion for creating it. We'll come back to that, yeah. Yeah. Vlad, any final comments? Well, in response to John's pessimism, uh, things were actually developing pretty well um, until 2007-2008 between Russia and the liberal order. Russia joined WTO. Uh, Even earlier, Putin even asked, would you invite us into NATO? Would you make us a member of NATO? That was all this nature. This is a crazy idea, right? I know. Um, It's a good idea. uh, Okay, a good idea, depending. The Chinese should respond. Is it a good idea? (laughs) Oh, it's an awful idea. Terrible. Um, Because there's the longest border between Russia and China, the longest border in the world. Um, So, um, again, this adaptation of Russia to the liberal order was happening, and to a certain extent, although much, in a much more diminished way, it is happening today, I think. It is this backlash against the liberal, uh, liberal movement, so-called. Uh, it's not, you know, really, there's dialectic here, maybe slightly artificial to distinguish between something that is the core of the liberal order that's constantly reinventing it, revising, pushing frontiers, and so on and so forth. But for Russia, uh, it faced it in the form of colored revolutions, informed, unfortunately, it came to Russian public opinion via media, of course, via state media, as a security problem, as a securitized and geopolitical problem. Mm. And that was highly unfortunate, but maybe given geography, 
And given what uh, intermediary countries, and you know, I, you know, they probably hate being called like that, and countries from the Baltic to, 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 the, to Moldova see themselves as really wanting to distance from Russia, given all these realities of history and geography, what, what else you could expect? So I don't, I don't much blame NATO for expansion. I don't blame, you know, I don't put all the eggs on, you know, on that basket of NATO's culpability. I think it was quite kind of, you know, an inevitable drama. But unfortunately, not all uh, people ended up happy mm. on the other side. Okay. Right. We've got time, plenty of time now for some questions, uh, answers, hands going up all over the place. Why don't we just start with two quick questions down here? I'll, p- I'll pick a couple, couple over here. So I'm going to take a group. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Farr, LSE student. Thank you so much um, for such an interesting talk. My question would be if Trump now with the new upcoming elections being a Republican and history proving that Republicans didn't hold presidency for two terms, most than not, what kind of effect would that have on the liberal order? Would Trump would have such an impact on the liberal order in that sense, especially that him and Obama beforehand had a kind of a withdrawal um, exiting kind of strategy from world order or more domestic uh, Okay. Kind of focus. So if Trump gets a second term, fun. Um, what impact is it going to have on the structure of the liberals? The gentleman there, yeah. And I'll come over here then. Quick question. Is the liberal order to which you referred... Is depend- the liberal order... The, the liberal world order to which you referred dependent on the suffering of, the, of Europe in the Second World War and the suffering of America in the 30s? And if so... Do our present problems derive from the fact that we've forgotten all about this? Hmm. History, 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 yeah. History, yeah, yeah no, that's a good question. Over here, yeah, anybody, yeah. Throw them around. Hi there. Oh, thank you. And um, thank you for everybody. I mean, every speaker, I mean, in the, in the fact question. that everybody mentioned China at least more than twice. <laughs> and uh, the panel the first, is perfect. The first public lecture at the LSE, which yeah, has been mentioned a hundred times. I mean, I mean, I can show you, my friend. I mean, the the panel is perfect. Expect, expect that there is a, should be a Chinese speaker. Yes, we are very happy to attend the lecture here, especially in London. It's not only the birthplace of the democracy, but the birthplace of communist communists as well. And uh, what you what you are talking about reminds me of two set two pair of great power relations. First, the British Empire and the U.S. Second, and the U.S. and the Soviet Union relations. Now, believe it or not, like it or not, China will be a great power, and the China-U.S. relations. I mean, that in the near future, China will be the number one great power. Okay. I, is it possible no, for... No, we don't speak. I'm sorry. Okay. There are other people here. Okay. Just question. Oh, I, question? Yeah. Clearly you're a parliamentarian. Is it, is it possible for the China-U.S. relation to be, a, to be one to avoid the U.S.-Soviet Soviet okay. Union relation? Okay. Rather, I mean, to have a kind of U.K.-U.S. relation. Thank you. Great. Thanks very much. I'm taking a few, yeah, chat there and the lady behind, yeah, please. It, it was interesting to hear your statement about how suddenly the Soviet Union fell. Um, Russia's GDP now sits between Korea's and Spain's. Uh, how can it still have 
such a global voice when it's become just a minute player on the economic scene? Is it simply because it has a large nuclear arsenal still? And then I also thought it was interesting that you said if, if Putin were to leave that nobody would really change things, but maybe that could be a catalyst for major change in Russia's maintenance of its yeah. nuclear arsenal, which changes the complexion of, uh, yeah. of, of, its, of its geopolitical stance. Russia's like something out of a Douglas Hurd speech. It punches above its weight. And that's, that's yeah, the paradox. Right. There's a lady behind you anyway. Madam. Hi. Thank you. If we fast forward to a world in 2050, and this is uh, particularly for Professor Eikenberry, what kind of world order would that look like? And would that represent, uh, I quote in your article, an ultimate ascendance of the liberal international order in 2050? And how would China sit alongside this order and help shape that future global order over the next uh, three decades? Thank you. Now that's an easy question to it answer. Is. John, it's the concluding I, chapter of his yeah, new book. So. Yeah, maybe you'd like to start with the Goldman Sachs prediction that China will have a $70 trillion economy in the year 2050, and the United States will only have $40 trillion, John. Why don't you start with that simple question at the end? Well, I'm, you know, Where I'm are we going to be in 2050? I, I go to the health club every back. day because I want to find out. I want to, yeah, uh, 2050 is definitely a, a year I want to be around to find oh. out. But <laughs> uh, try. I, we'll be I, here. Uh, I think that um, my general view is that the... the um, the, the, it will, the, I mean, the question you need to ask is, when there is less America, will there be less liberal order? And I think the, the answer is probably yes, but it's thick order that uh, has this kind of quality of a, of a security community, a league of democracies, this kind of, kind of structure for, uh, for, for liberal democracy may not be able to, to survive into that period in a more redistributed world of power and and the rise of China and other other states so but the the the, the deeper structure of the order kind of westphalian sovereign system where where you have intergovernmental cooperation on solving problems of interdependence you can get a lot of order without even talking about liberalism uh, so my, the, the U.S. and the Soviet Union engaged in Westphalian internationalism during the Cold War, uh, working through the WHO on communicable disease and obviously arms control and lots of sp space, uh, space agreements and so forth. So you can get a lot of cooperation in a very, a very um, heterogeneous world with lots of different kinds of regimes. Uh, and I think that's the baseline. That's what you want to be able to try to protect that because you're going to need a lot of cooperation on climate change, on other uh, uh, catastrophic uh, dangers to humanity. So you need to find the sweet spot for cooperation. And you may need to give up some of your liberal movement goals to get mm -hmm. as much of that as possible. So I think that's what you – that's what is the most uh, kind of sensible – goal of trying to achieve that. And if you can get more than that, uh, uh, I'll be happy. Okay. Uh, Mary, got any predictions or um, our liberal order is dependent on previous suffering, World War II and uh, the World Depression? That's a question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think <clears throat> my view is that, you know, if we go all the way back to Westphalia, 
we always, there's always been a global system. Um, there weren't nation-states on their own. They were always dependent on mutual recognition, and there was always a set of treaties, rules they agreed about. And the point is that over time, these rules have got much, much thicker. And what we have to take into account is that we do live in a world of incredible interconnectedness, Mm. Um, that everything is interconnected, Uh, We can't really do anything any longer without some form of global or international regulation. We we live in a much thicker system of regulation than we ever lived in before. Uh, And that's not necessarily a product of past suffering, but it is a product of economic development, of new technologies. And, of course, all of those things are not just sort of um, deterministic phenomenon. They're created by people, they're created by multinational companies, they're created by civil society. And so I think we have to look at the society that exists in the world. Now, of course, it's true that there are nationalist, populist regimes that want to turn their backs on globalization, as is the case of Trump, that want to turn their back on. Uh, what are agreed international rules. Uh, But the question is, what are the consequences of that? Is it to go back to isolationism, or is it just to create more and more disorder? I I find it very, very shocking um, when we think of what's happened in Syria and the contrast with how conflicts were dealt with in the 1990s and what it has meant in practice now, I never believed that I would see the deliberate bombing of hospitals and schools, not only by Russia, but also by the United States. Uh, targeted assassination, which has become completely acceptable in the US. This is not the liberal world order. The idea that you can have a tro- drone campaign and that you can hit, no. you can kill somebody on the basis of what's called a signature, that they somehow fit the characteristics of a terrorism is really shocking for the liberal world order or the undermining of the chemical weapons convention. So there are all these attacks, but what do they do to the liberal world order? What they do is make it much more turbulent. And I think one very likely prediction for 2050 is that we're going to go through a very turbulent period that we're going to see more violence, more horrible violations of human rights, that climate change is happening already and is already having horrible consequences. So when I sound optimistic, you know, I think this is the reality we live in. But when um, somebody, was it Mick or Peter, asked me, how the hell do you get to this new liberal world order? You know, where is the basis? I think one very big difference, well, it was always there, but one very big difference now is that you do have a lot of social movements from below, and it's that way that it's going to be created. It's not going to be finding a new occupant in the White House. A new occupant might create space, but it's going to be through much more educated populations, people organizing for themselves, trying to change things. And that I see around me happening all the time. I mean, one of the 
peculiarities of Brexit. People say the British government is completely ridiculous, and I agree, and the British are making themselves look ridiculous. But also the fact that Brexit has been thwarted has been an incredible exercise in democracy, and that actually you have a huge number of movements who have been operating to try and prevent this happening. And those movements make me feel very optimistic. So, same happening in the United States, I think. Yes, same um, in the United States. I was going to mention... The backlash the, to the backlash. Exactly. The backlash, the backlash against the what backlash. she called Alessandra... Yeah. Exactly. One of my, one of my, uh, Vlad. Very quickly addressing the question that surprises me also. How, how could Putin and Russia do this feat of uh, punching above... Douglas Hurd used that rather yeah, odd uh, two re- I, see, I see two clear reasons uh, how they could it. Uh, the minor reason, uh, they began to speak, they were the first to speak against the unipolar liberal order mm-hmm. and spoke for multipolarity at the time, you know, they were ridiculed for that and, and so on and so forth. Now we do live in a multipolar world after all. Um, so uh, they, it's sort of like uh, what they began to do to give voice to those who disagreed with all the certainties that emanated from Washington. And that gained them a huge uh, audience around the world. But it's a minor, uh, I think, cause. The bigger cause, in my opinion, is the liberal order itself makes Russia bigger than, taller than, you know, 100 inches. Um, uh, uh, feet. Uh, uh, because the liberal order is uh, in part a movement, and as every millionaire and passionate movement, when this movement faces uh, internal insecurities, it, it tries to other this uh, looking for an external enemy. And that is a very, very strong culture, as we discussed, you know, Peter knows in our seminar, a uh, very strong culture in democracies, particularly in the United States and the UK. Finding an enemy... Uh, papacy, France, Russia, what not, communism, what not. And it is this effect, I think, that to 90% uh, helps Putin to, uh, to be greater than he ever could be with the existing economic and political resources. Okay. Uh, Peter, last word, I'm afraid. Um, last word? I yeah. think I'll skip on 2050 and go to 2020. Yeah. Um, so, Trump times two, does it mean the end of the liberal order? Why so, you know, we, we, we had Nancy Pelosi here um, uh, a few weeks back, and, and uh, she said something about Trump being reelected, which I, I think is, she said, you know, the thing is, is, we can survive one term. I'm not, I'm not so sure about two terms. Well, two terms. And, um, you know, I think the thing about if, if Trump is reelected, I mean, if, if you think about Trump's election and George W. Bush's election, these are two presidents that got elected without the popular vote, and those two guys together did a lot of unraveling. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, what Trump's presidency seems to me to underscore is just how much the president can do without any congressional, you know, engagement. And I think if he's in for, and, it, and it's possible, um, another four years, um, there'll be a lot more unraveling. Um, of the international order. The last thing to just say on that is that I think a lot of international leaders have been assuming this was a one-term presidency and they've been waiting them out. And if 
he's here again and we've got, you know, gets reelected, that bets off and it will be interesting to see what that sets in motion internationally. As, as we in, from Chicago say, vote early and vote often. Exactly. <laughs> Whether you're an American or not. <laughs> so in Chicago, that's true. Also, may I just add, in the European elections, which are on now, any student who hasn't registered... Oh, I think it's too late. It's too late. But anyway, you must vote. <laughs> OK, on, on that particular note. Well, I'd like to thank uh, all of our speakers for their contributions. Uh, And equally importantly, thanking you for coming along tonight and asking some great questions as well.